So Romans 1 is where we're going to be this morning as we study God's Word together. By way of introduction, I want to talk about two of my favorite things in the whole world to talk about. The first one is the character of God. I love to talk about who God is. Specifically, I love to talk about and think about and meditate upon God in His goodness and God in His sovereignty. Give me an opportunity to talk about those things. Give me an opportunity to talk and somehow or another I want to work in the opportunity or work in dialogue about God in His goodness and God in His sovereignty. And one of the reasons why I love to talk about God and His goodness and His sovereignty is because we live in such a messed up world. We live in a world that has experienced the effects of sin, the effects of the fall, and it has messed everything up. And so we have personal conflicts and things don't go our way because people aren't uh, kind and gracious to us. They're not loving toward us. And sometimes we even return the favor. Not only that, so we have personal conflicts as a result of the fall. Uh, We even see uh, this world that we live in. And all the different events that happen, we see all the effects of the fall there, or some of them. Not only that, we even see uh, things happening, as we've seen this past week, tragedy resulting in what's happened even in the climate. We live in a sin-cursed, fallen world, and it means circumstances are not the way we want them to be. How do you deal with that? Well, you deal with that as a Christian by remembering the goodness of God, even dealing with fallen people in a fallen world, and you remember the sovereignty of God, that He has the power, that He has the wisdom, that He has the authority to do what He says He does, Romans 8.28, to cause all things, context of Romans 8 is suffering and circumstances not going the way we want them to go to cause all things, even the bad things, to work together for good for those who are called according to His purposes, for those who love Him, for believers. I don't know how people deal with life. I don't know how Christians deal with life if they don't first and foremost have this focused view of the goodness of God and of the sovereignty of God. That's really our mainstay. That's really our foundation as all sorts of things happen around us, circumstances that we don't like that leads to all sorts of tragedy and all sorts of heartbreak. Where do we as Christians go? Where should we go? God in His infinite wisdom and according to His amazing goodness and sovereignty has promised that He is causing all things to work together for good. We don't know how, we don't know when, but they're working together for the good of those who love Him and the good of those who are called according to His purposes. That shows His greatness, it shows His love, it shows His sovereignty. Have I mentioned that I love to talk about that? (laughs) Give me an opportunity and I want to... Maybe one reason is because so many times Christians forget these truths and it's no wonder that they don't know how to deal with living in a fallen world. But I love to talk about it because it helps me as well. And it hopefully results in praising God for being such an amazing God. Second thing I love to talk about, quite different, is I love to talk about the book of Romans. Give me an opportunity 
I want to talk about Romans. When I go and speak somewhere I've never been before, if I have the opportunity, I'm not really sure what to speak on, I'm going to do what I love to do, and that's my jet tour of Romans, covering chapter 1 through chapter 16. I want to talk about Romans. I want to talk about Romans because it's such an amazing book. It covers so much. It covers who God is in His righteousness. It covers who God is in His grace. It talks about who God is, oh yes, as we were saying earlier, His sovereignty and His wisdom and His goodness. And it talks about sin so that we might understand why things are as messed up as they are, not only in this world, but even in our own lives. It talks about Christian living. It talks about all of these different aspects. And it talks about Christ in a way that I think is unmatched. It exalts Christ in His greatness and His supremacy and His perfect atoning work like no other written document I know of. I love to talk about Romans, and I love to talk about Romans not only because of those things, I love to talk about Romans because of the impact that it has had even historically since it was written. It has impacted the famous to the infamous. It has impacted my own heart like perhaps no other book has impacted my heart. As a new Christian studying Romans as a college student, and I'll never forget learning who this great God is and His righteousness and this great God is and His grace, and I know many of you could share the same kind of testimony. I love Romans because it exalts Christ and it sorts everything out. And you might be asking, what do these two things have to do with one another? Not to mention, what do these two things have to do with Romans chapter 1, Pat? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17 is the text we'll be looking at this morning. And in Romans 1, 8 to 17, what we see is Paul giving a defense, Paul giving an apologetic, Paul giving an explanation as to why he had not yet visited Rome, why he had not gone to Rome to help the Christians there. Now, we don't know if they were complaining. We don't know if others were launching accusation against him for not going. After all, he's the apostle to the Gentiles, and so that would mean he should go to Rome. And after all, Rome is the capital city of capital cities. It would make sense. Or whether Paul just knew that everyone expected him to go there, so he's giving his defense even without someone asking for his defense. We don't know, but what we do know is he is giving a defense. He's explaining why he has not been to Rome yet. And he gives multiple reasons, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But one thing he doesn't talk about, but we know to be true because of what has happened as a result of writing Romans and what has happened after and according to the circumstance. While they so badly, the Roman Christians, wanted Paul to come, they didn't understand why he hadn't come. From the Christian's perspective, he should have come. These were circumstances they didn't like, that Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles hasn't come to us yet. From what we're going to read, Paul himself wanted to go to Rome and was trying and praying toward that end, wanting to go to Rome. If you were to ask Paul, is it good for you to go to Rome? Should you go to Rome? He would have said yes and yes. But circumstances have not allowed me to do what it is I think I should do. The reason, my friends, from a human perspective, that we have the book of Romans in our Bibles is because God is good and God is sovereign and God did not let the Christians have what they wanted and God did not let Paul have what he wanted. 
Paul wanted to go to Rome so he could do what? Teach them the things that he writes down for them in the book of Romans. The Romans wanted Paul to come. Why? So that he could help them to be more mature in the faith. So that they could be taught by Paul the things that he had to write down in the book of Romans. In a sense, you'd have to say, this was the second best. And we all know, based upon what's happened afterward, we all know, based upon what we have here in Romans, that God was wiser than the Roman Christians. And God was wiser than Paul the Apostle. I am so glad God didn't let Paul go to Rome when he wanted to go to Rome. I am so glad that God chose circumstances and to work through these negative circumstances so that the Christians in Rome couldn't have what they wanted because what do we have? We have Romans written down. It's amazing to contemplate. It shows and exalts the wisdom of God and the goodness of God that while things don't work out the way we want them to, they always, for believers, work out for the best in light of Romans 8.28 and following. Well, he doesn't talk about that because no doubt this was not what he was... He didn't say, well, the reason I haven't come yet is because God is providentially working through circumstances and the way it's going to work out is I'm going to write this stuff down to you. I'll get to you later, but I'll write this stuff down and for the next 2,000 plus years, lives will be radically transformed as a result. But it's true. And it wouldn't surprise Paul because he knows God is working everything together sovereignly. Well, with all of that said, I couldn't resist making that an emphasis because it is so amazing to see and it's so good for us to be reminded of the fact that things don't always work out the way we want them to, but they do always work out for the best. Now we come to Paul's defense. I'm going to list for you a five-fold explanation. Maybe Paul didn't intend it to be a five-fold explanation. He gives an explanation. He gives a defense, but it might help us to follow his train of thought a little bit better. Let me preview that for you now. Number one, we'll keep it real simple. Number one, his praise. He offers his praise in verse 8 as part of his defense. We'll talk about what that means in a little bit. Number two, second part of his defense, his prayer, verses 9 and 10. He's praying about wanting to go to Rome, part of his defense. Number three, his passion, his passion to go to Rome, verses 11 and 12. Number four, his plan, his plan to go to Rome, verse 13. And number five, his preaching priority. His preaching priority, verses 14 to 17. Usually, when I offer a sermon outline, I try not to tie it and limit it to a historical person because so often it can be applicable to all of us in principle this is not the case if I made this applicable to all of us in principle at least we would have to violate good principles of Bible interpretation this is not about us this is not applicable to us at least on the surface this is about Paul and so in one sense this is looking at history uh, God's redemptive history because he's dealing with Paul in a certain cir- circumstance we'll look at uh, verses 18 and following quite differently But right here, right now, this is about Paul. This is not about us. But as you will see, as we go, we won't be able to help but find application because all Scripture is profitable and we certainly will see how it applies to us along the way. Number one, first part of his defense, his praise. Look with me, if you would, at verse 8. He says, first, 
As if to say, first things first, let's get this clear about this matter of me not coming to you and why I haven't come. Who knows why? Maybe you're upset about it. Maybe I just need to clarify this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Never met you before, but I know you're believers and I just want you to know, just to clear the air if need be. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. I'm thankful for you. It's not that I'm indifferent and somehow I don't care about Christians who are in Rome. Maybe that's what someone has been telling you, but it's not true. Let me just get this clear right away up front before I get into the teaching of the letter. I thank God for you. And I love the way Paul just can't help himself but include theology even as he's explaining himself. It's through Jesus Christ because that would be the only way anyone could ever thank God because he's the one and only mediator. But let's just make this clear. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Even though I've never met you, this is the reality. This is my defense of my love for you and commitment to you as an apostle. But why is he thankful? He's thankful because they're such good people. He's thankful because they're they're so faithful as Christians. No? Keep reading. Because your faith... Notice, not your faithfulness. Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. I thank God for you. You know why? Because of your faith. Because of your faith in Christ. In other words, because you're believers. I thank God for you because you've been converted. And so, if there's any question about my motives or what I'm about, I want to make sure that you know I am praising God. I'm thanking God for you, specifically for your faith, that you are believers, that there are believers in Rome, that there are Roman Christians. I am well aware, Paul is saying, and I am well aware to the point where I am busy thanking God that you've been converted. It's a priority for me to do this. That's why I say, first, let's get this clear. Now think about how encouraging that would have been on two levels. Think about how encouraging it would have been for them to know Paul really does care about us. In fact, he's thanking God through Jesus Christ that we're believers. That's encouraging to us. We've been hearing different rumors perhaps and wondering why he hasn't come to us. But you know, we've heard that he actually thanks God for us that we're believers. And so they would have been encouraged. But not only would they have been encouraged, think about other believers. And that really brings us to the end of verse 8. That your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Just think of how encouraging it would have been for believers around the whole known world to know that there are Christians. There are Christians not just in Jerusalem. There are Christians not just in Israel. There are Christians in Rome. This would have been a big deal. This would have been tremendously encouraging to the point Paul saying, I'm thanking God, you know what? And I'm thanking God that it is, it is being talked about around the whole world that there are believers in Rome. So they're going to be encouraged, no doubt, by knowing this. But think how encouraging it would have been for other believers if you live somewhere else that the gospel has perme- uh, penetrated, the gospel has taken root even in Rome. Rome, the capital city of the empire. Rome, you'd have to say the capital city of the whole world at the time. 
In Rome, you have over a million people at this point in time, historians tell us. You've got the emperor's palace. You have the forum there. As one writer said, she was the eternal city, the fount of law, the center of civilization, the mecca of poets and orators and artists. I mean, it is the place for culture. It is the place for law. It is the place. And people are hearing about it around the world. There are believers there. But you know what? It's not just the place at the time for these things that we might consider to be good things. It was the place for every strain of pagan idolatry. And so that would have been encouraging as well. Paul is saying, you know what? People around the world know that even in a place like Rome, rank paganism is not the only thing alive and well. The gospel is so powerful. There are believers in Rome of all places and people, Christians around the world are talking about it. And what does that mean? It means they're giving praise to God, that God, you are so powerful and your son is so amazing and so great that even people in a place like Rome are repenting and believing in Christ. Obviously, the reason for him not visiting is not because he's not impressed with the grace of God at work in Rome. He's making that clear. But we come to a second component to his defense, his prayer. His prayer. He's been praying for an opportunity to visit. Let's go ahead and see that in verse 9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the gospel of His Son, I'm preaching from the New American Standard, they italicized and added preaching the gospel because it's more generic than that. It really shouldn't be there. For God, whom I serve in, in my spirit in the gospel of His Son, yes, preaching, but in every possible way. And He's making the point clear. I do this in my spirit. This is at the core of my being. You know who I am as a person? As a person, I serve God. And specifically, I serve God in the matter of the gospel. The gospel of His Son. I am all about the gospel of His Son. You know this to be true. This is who I am. And then He says it the end of that little section in verse 9 is my witness. I need to reread that. And I'm going to take out the middle. For God, comma, take out the middle, is my witness. But he inserts that little snapshot to make sure everyone understands that he is more committed to God than anything else, specifically when it comes to the gospel. But what is he saying when he says, God is my witness? He's standing under oath. You know what? Under oath before God, what I'm about ready to tell you is true. You know that this is where my heart is. I serve God in my spirit when it comes to the matter of the gospel, which is what we're talking about here. Then verse 9, read with me, continue on where it says, As to how, I'm standing before God under oath, as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Then to add another word for emphasis in verse 10, always. So we have unceasingly always in my prayers making request. If perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Stop listening to anybody, including yourself, if you think I haven't come because somehow I don't want to come. 
Look at my, my prayer life. I pray to come. I want to come. I want to be with you. It makes sense. The gospel's made an impact there. And my whole life is about the gospel as I serve God. And so I want you to know that you have to know that I stand before God saying, I pray about this all the time. He's defending himself. This is who I am. Did you notice what he does acknowledge though? In verse 10 again, always in my prayer making a request. Did you notice then he says, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you? I just love that. I just love how we see personal desire. He knows it's the right thing to do, but he also knows that ultimately the determiner over him and his desire even is God. He's acknowledging the sovereignty of God. I know that this is what, what, what needs to be done. It's my desire to do this. I'm praying fervently. And then he says, he has to add the caveat, if perhaps now at last by the will of God. You've got to love that. John Murray in his classic commentary wisely observes, the fulfillment of this desire and request had been repeatedly frustrated by the providence of God. He did not, for this reason, cease to entertain the desire and make requests for its fulfillment, but he resigns himself completely to the will of God. It's not that he stops praying. He, he knows he's the apostle to the Gentiles. He knows it makes sense for him to go, so he's praying that he can go, but he also knows to add what he knows to be true in his prayer, and that's an acknowledgement that God alone is sovereign, and so he'll trust him. Isn't that good? By way of application, can I just ask you the question? Is your, is your worldview Christian enough? Is your, is your worldview biblical enough? Do you, do you have a high enough view of God which the Bible gives us to ever add such caveats to your praying? I would encourage you to, to be living like you really believe in the sovereignty of God. Yes, with passion to do things. Yes, with passion to do things you know are actually biblical things. But to also know that there's a good and right place to say, if the Lord wills, this will happen. It's what we want to do. Now, it doesn't mean Paul always says this every single time, but you do have the idea he always believes it. It's always on his mind. It's guiding and directing everything. Submitting everything to the will of God. This would have been a good teaching tool for the Roman believers even as Paul is talking to them in these terms. They're seeing his passion just bleed from the letter. But Paul is not sovereign. And neither are they. And I have to say, neither are we. Pray with fervency. Pray with passion. Do ministry with passion. But it is always. If the Lord wills. Because He's sovereignly in control. And we know full well that He doesn't always do things the way we would necessarily think are best. But we also know full well that eventually it will be made evident that it actually was the best. Well, let's move on then. We move on now to a third component to His defense. His passion His passion comes through again as if it didn't in his prayer, but it certainly comes through in verses 11 and 12. He says, 
For I long, there's a passion word, for I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. I want so badly to come and help you. I want so badly to establish you, or as other translations say, to strengthen you. And that seems to be the idea. I want to help. I want to come. I want to establish you. I want to strengthen you in the faith. I know that this is right. I know that this is good. And it is my passion to do so. Again, stop listening to people who might suggest somehow my motives are wrong or my motives are bad or something like that. No, my passion is to come and to strengthen you, to establish you to bring a spiritual gift to you, to impart a spiritual gift to you. As an interpretive matter, that actually is an interpretive matter. It's probably not the idea that Paul is going to... He's probably not using spiritual gift in a technical, formal sense, like 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, Probably not. In fact, I would say certainly not. Because in 1 Corinthians 12, I believe it's verse 11. I should check. Chapter 12, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians, the Holy Spirit is the one who is sovereign in giving spiritual gifts. Never do we have any hint of that being somehow mediated through people like the Apostle Paul. So it seems to be more in a generic sense, not in a formal spiritual gift sense. He's simply saying, I want to come and I want to, be, I want to strengthen you. Obviously, it's going to be under the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, it'll be a gift because it's coming as a result of God's grace. But not the 1 Corinthians 12 sense. And then I love the contrast verse 11, you've got Paul wanting to come for their benefit. Then verse 12 comes, just to balance things out a a bit. That is, almost by way of contrast, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Just so there's no, no, no misunderstandings here. I want to come and I want to come and help you and establish you and to strengthen you and to impart a spiritual gift to you. Yes, I want to come for your benefit, but just to clarify things so no one misunderstands, I'm not an egomaniac. And I'm not, you know, uber apostle who needs nothing. When I'm there, I'll see what Christ has done in your life according to His grace. And I'll be encouraged and I'll be strengthened. And when I'm there, you'll see what Christ has done in my life. And certainly, yes, as an apostle, but, but you'll be strengthened too. And this is what happens whenever believers get together, right? Whenever true believers get together and, and they see the transforming grace of God in another person's life, there, there's edification. People are built up. And, and Paul is not above being built up. He's not above being edified. He wants to go and be with them for their benefit, but he also wants to go and be with them for, for His benefit. Fourth component to His defense, His plan. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. I think that's stressing the importance. I don't want you to miss this. Verse 13 goes on to say that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even among the rest of the Gentiles, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Remember, he just got done explaining to them how passionate he was in praying that he could come. And now he's making sure he covers his bases. He's overlapping. You know what? I'm also ultra passionate, not just in my praying to come, but in my planning to come. I want to be with you. 
I absolutely want to be with you. I, I, want to, I want to be with you so that God uses it for His glory, so that He bears fruit as a result, so that there's spiritual growth, so that there's opportunities for evangelism, that there is fruit obtained. I want to be with you. And then notice how he ends it, verse 13. Even as among the rest of the Gentiles. This has been normal. Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles, and so it's been normal for him to go and make an impact in Gentile communities and for God to produce fruit and for fruit to be obtained. That leads us into number five, which is really all about that. A fifth part of Paul's defense and our final one that we'll look at this morning, his preaching priority, his ministry priority, his preaching priority, it's aimed at the Gentiles. And this becomes significant to his defense. Look at verse 14 with me, where it says, I am under obligation. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. To eliminate every question about why I haven't come yet, I need to make it clear to you I am under obligation. My focus, my priority for ministry is aimed at Gentiles. So, of course, I want to come to Rome. Absolutely, I want to come to Rome because it's a city filled with Gentiles. So, again, make no mistake about it. I do want to be with you. He seems to give this pair just for the sake of emphasis where he says Greeks and barbarians and then wise and foolish, you can connect the Greeks with the wise and the barbarians with the foolish. He's talking about the same individuals. The Greeks are the wise, the barbarians are the foolish. What he's getting at is Gentiles. Because you have the Greeks and the barbarians, the wise and the foolish. The Greeks were the cultural people, people who spoke Greek, the people who were literate in poetry, the people who were cultured. The barbarians were the people who didn't speak Greek, the people who weren't cultured. You've got highbrow, you have lowbrow. As a matter of fact, the word for barbarian is actually onomatopoetic in Greek, and it's for a babbler. People who don't speak your language sound like they're uneducated. It's a misnomer, but that's how it is. You've got the Greeks, the educated highbrow, and you've got the barbarians, the untaught. But both groups are Gentiles. Paul's making this thing clear. I'm all about the Gentiles. Rome is a Gentile community. Of course I want to come to Rome. And oh, by the way, in case someone on a different level is trying to make accusation about me, and you know I'm trying to somehow target some certain audience, I'm all about Gentiles. And it doesn't matter if they're highbrow or lowbrow. I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I want to come to Rome, and I will reach out to both kinds of people. Stop listening to someone if they're trying to tell you the reason Paul hasn't come yet is because he's only aiming at a certain kind of Gentile, a certain kind of people group. It's not the case. It's interesting, isn't it, where he says, I'm under obligation. At first, you might think, yes, he's under obligation. He's under obligation because Christ has redeemed him 
And he is a bondservant of Christ. So he's under obligation. That's chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And at first you might be tempted to say, yeah, he's under obligation because he's a bondservant of Christ. That would be true, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Because if you look at the verse more closely, verse 14, I am under obligation. He doesn't say to Christ here, although he is. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. In other words, I'm under obligation to Gentiles. I'm obliged to Gentiles. Why would that be the case? Well, because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. God has saved him. Christ has redeemed him. Yes, yes, he is a bondservant of Christ. But where has Christ aimed him? Where has Christ pointed him? To the Gentiles. So he is obligated. He is obliged to do ministry focusing on Gentiles. Romans 11.13 says, I am an apostle of Gentiles. 1 Timothy 2.7, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. They are my target audience. But it doesn't matter what kind of Gentile they are. But I am obligated I am obliged, I will, by, by, by the very nature of my calling by Christ, I will do ministry to them and with them without any shame. Because of who I am. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. So again, we don't really know what was going on and what caused Paul, what moved Paul to have to give the defense. Whether this is a hypothetical accusation that he's addressing doesn't really seem like it to me. It seems like he's belaboring his defense, which makes me conclude, even though the text doesn't tell us, so with some tentativeness, someone is throwing mud. And he's having to explain himself. He is not a man-pleaser. He's not a respecter of persons. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, and it shows in his preaching priority. So the fact that he hasn't gone to Rome yet has absolutely nothing to do with him liking certain people and not other people. It has everything to do with the sovereignty of God being in control, and he's not yet been able, according to the sovereignty of God, to go to Rome yet. And we are so thankful because we have Romans that he wrote these things down. Well, let's look at these remaining three verses. In verse 15 it says, So, for my part, I'm eager. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Uh, There's no question about it. Given who I'm an apostle to, I'm eager. And I want to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. Absolutely make no mistake about it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I think it's kind of confusing. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Well, um, is this letter not written to Roman Christians? Well, I think it is, and most people think it is. But then some people say, well, this, this can't be right. So here he switches, and he's not talking about the Roman Christians. He's talking about all the people who are in Rome in verse 15, but kind of only in verse 15. Because after all, he's talking about preaching the gospel, and he wouldn't be talking about preaching the gospel to believers. So in verse 15, he sort of switches what he's doing, and he's only talking about unbelievers. And I just don't buy it. So then how else do you understand it? Well, you understand gospel as bigger than simple evangelism. You understand gospel as bigger than simple evangelism. 
He's not saying, I am eager to come and to present the gospel to you so you can be converted, although he would certainly do that at any opportunity he would have. But he's writing this particular letter to Christians who are in Rome, and as he's addressing them, he says, verse 15, it's the most straightforward way to take it, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. How is it that you would go and preach the gospel to believers? Perhaps it should trouble us that we have to ask that question. Because it probably shows us that we think we shouldn't preach the gospel to believers. And I think we're greatly mistaken. I want to come and I'm eager to preach the gospel to you believers. The truth about Christ. The truth about His death and His substitutionary atonement. The truth about His great work of redemption. The truth about His great resurrection and all that it means for us. How about this? I am eager to come to you and to preach the truth I am now writing down in the book of Romans. That's what he's saying. We preach the gospel to believers. We're preaching Romans to believers. I think that's the essence of what he's saying. And this just justifies what I've been saying earlier. We are studying the gospel according to Romans. I'm eager to come and give you what I'm about ready to write down to you to help you to be strengthened in the faith, to help you to be built up in the faith. We most certainly should be preaching the gospel to believers because we're heralding the good news of salvation in Christ and all that it entails. This is an amazing reality. I love to be reminded of this. I love as a pastor to remind you of this. We will never get our minds around all of the breadth and all of the depth and all of the height of the greatness of Christ and the greatness of His gospel. We will give our lives to talking about it. We will give our lives to proclaiming it. We will give our lives to trying to understand it better. We will give our lives to defending it. When we think it's time to move past preaching the gospel, believing the gospel, studying the gospel, we probably don't have any clue of the gospel, right? Paul's saying, I can't wait to come. I can't wait to come. And he's talking to believers. And I can't wait to come and preach the gospel to you. And it's in the context of, I can't wait to come so that I can help establish you in the faith, so I can build you up, so I can strengthen you. And I love it that he's doing that very thing. That's something I want to take note of, and I want you to take note of it as well. Well, the last two verses we'll look at this morning, and and I plan to look at verses 16 and 17 alone uh, next time because there's so much there. But what I didn't want to do is separate it out now because it belongs together as part of this section, part of his defense. If there's any question about Paul and him not coming to Rome, maybe maybe he's intimidated by Rome because it's such a cultural place, or maybe he thinks he's above it because it's such a pagan place. Verses 16 and 17 should remove all doubt. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Don't you dare think I'm not to Rome yet because somehow I'm ashamed of the gospel. That's not the case at all. Why? For it is the power. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I take salvation in the broadest, biggest sense. We'll look at that next time. To the Jew first, yes, let's acknowledge that. But And also to the Greek, also for the Gentile, also... For others, verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's why it's so powerful. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. 
The gospel is where the power is. I don't care if you're a Jew. I don't care if you're a Greek. The gospel is where the power is. It has nothing to do with me being ashamed. Nothing whatsoever. I want to come. But how about this? Speaking with some sarcasm. I really, 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 really want to come and I know that that's what you think is best, Paul is saying, and I really want to come and that's what I think is best. But in the meantime, I'll just have to give you this letter. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. That what the Christians thought would be best, what what the Apostle Paul thought would be best, we know today was not the best. God is to be praised for not giving what we giving to us what we pray for at times. No doubt they were praying. Paul was praying. God says no and no. Oh, and by the way, for the next 2,000 plus years, I am going to bless the people of God more than they could possibly ever imagine as a result by giving them Romans. Is God not to be praised? He is to be praised. And we should be thankful and we should have that impact the way we think about circumstances now we might not understand the good that comes out of bad circumstances. I don't think these Romans really did, at least not at first. I don't think Paul really did either, at least not at first. But we trust in God and His sovereignty. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You so much for this time of study that we've had together in this book that is quite amazing. It's amazing because... It tells us so much about who you are and it tells us so much about your goodness and it tells us so much about your sovereignty and your grace and your wisdom and your power. We are thankful that Paul was not able to go to Rome even though he wanted to go there. We're thankful that he wasn't able to go to Rome even though the Roman Christians didn't understand and they wanted him to come. We know that eventually he was able to go and we praise you for that, but we are so thankful that your plans are so much more significant than ours and that you do see the big picture when we don't see the big picture. And it all testifies to your greatness, to your love, and to your mercy, and to your wisdom. And so we give you thanks this morning for such things. In Jesus' name, amen.